Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Trevor McManus, and joining me is Sujun Kim, Professor of Religious Studies at DePauw University. We'll be talking about her work, Shinra Myojin and Buddhist Networks of the East Asian Mediterranean, published by University of Hawaii last year in November. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kim. Hello, Trevor. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here, and I'm very excited to talk about your book. Uh, Likewise. I thought we'd start off by having you introduce yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal background? Yes. So uh, my name is Sujong Kim. Um, um, I'm currently teaching Buddhism and East Asian religions at DePaul University in Indiana. So um, I came to the States for my PhD program in 2007, so I studied with um, professors at Columbia University. Um, um, Bonar Four was my main advisor, and Chun Fang Yu, uh, Max Moma, Michael Como are my mentors that um, nourished me and eventually led me to write a um, book that is the uh, uh, topic of today's interview. Um, anything else should I mention? Um, I'm just curious. So you've mentioned some of your mentors. Mm-hmm. I, can you tell us a little bit about um, how some of their expertise has influenced this work that we'll be talking about today? Yes, uh, sure. Um, first, when I arrived at Columbia University, my goal was to write a Buddhist uh, history that encompasses Korea and mainly China, Korea and China interactions. So Professor Chun Fang Yu and actually the late Jayan um, Kim Habush were two main, uh, uh, main advisors. Um, but while I was taking uh, coursework um, with those uh, major uh, Japanese Buddhist specialists at Columbia University, I kind of got uh, uh, converted to Japanese Buddhism, but still transnationalism was something that I was very interested in doing it. So I took seminars with Bernard and Max and Michael. Eventually, uh, all of those three people's expertise kind of melted into my um, dissertation, which was based on this book, Shila Myojin and Buddhist Networks of the East East Asian Mediterranean. So, for instance, uh, Bernard, he's still working on this multi-volume, four volumes, uh, books on um, gods of medieval Japan. Uh, he has a one chapter on Shila Myojin, for instance. So reading primary sources in his seminar really helped me to think about this wonderful world of medieval gods and demons. And with uh, Max Moorman, his specialty, as you know, is uh, visual culture, medieval Japanese um, um, pilgrimage and um, other aspects uh, 
other aspects of medieval Japanese uh, visual culture really helped me to write a chapter on the iconography of Shila Myojin. And also Michael Como, uh, his expertise is ancient um, interaction between Korean immigrants and the uh, worship of um, Shotoku, Taishi Shotoku, um, Prince Shotoku in Japan. So that was also became very influential uh, for me to write a chapter on um, these immigrant networks in, and how that affects the, the worship of Shila Myojin. So yeah, all together came into uh, in this book. Yeah, our our listeners will be able to see the threads of these uh, the influence of these scholars as we proceed forward. It's very mm-hmm. fun. So can you tell us a little bit about the title of this book? Can we sort of unpack mm-hmm. uh, what it has in store yes. for us? Yeah, I I don't know whether I like the title or not because it's quite long. <laughs> <laughs> but it has everything that I wanted to say in the title because Shila Myojin is definitely the focal point. It's a lens. But the, the rest, the Buddhist networks of the East Asian and Mediterranean is more bigger context or broader uh, theme of this book or conceptual frame that I wanted to do using Shila Myojin as a case study. Just a fun uh, thing to uh, like to share with um, the listeners is that originally the title that I suggested to the uh, University of Hawaii Press was The Old Man and the Sea and Hemingway's novel. And the publisher said it's uh, too common. The title is a little bit um, not so appropriate. Um, so the old man, the sea was sort of um, abandoned, but the subtitle that I had in my original suggestion, which became, you know, that became the main title of the book. Hmm. That's interesting. The the old man in the sea sort of reminds me of the uh, Ernest Hemingway novel. Yes, of a yes that's exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> Myojin being the old man god, and the, you know, he's a primarily a sea deity. So I thought that could be a fun. Way uh-huh. to summarize the whole idea behind. Interesting. Mm-hmm. How about the uh, cover of this work? Can you tell yes. us a little bit about Thank the cover? Thank you for asking that question as well. Um, so, you know, as a scholar, you love the actual, you know, tangible um, material aspect of the book, right? So I was very happy with the book cover. But uh, also I wanted to um, mention that the image uh that I use in the cover jacket is not exactly the image that I wanted to use <laughs> <laughs> um, because there is a, a one image, probably uh, most uh, iconic image of Japanese wooden statue comes from roughly 11th century. And that image of Shila Myojin was something that I wanted to have on my book jacket cover. And when I asked the Onjoji monks to get permission, uh, I met the you know chief um, monk at Onjoji in person and very politely asked him, can I use the, that particular image? And he said, nope. <laughs> so <laughs> there was no way to get the permission there because that image is actually national treasure in Japan. Mm-hmm. And also, as you know, in Buddhist tradition, certain images are too sacred to be shown to the public. 
Is that the uh, hibitsu? Yes, hibutsu. Hibutsu, exactly. Yes, so it's a hidden Buddha and has amazing power so that uh, in Japan, especially, you reluctantly display those Buddhas. Um, If they did it, they do it only a certain group of people or in a particular time frame, like every 15 years or every 30 years or something like that. So that particular image, um, which I talk a lot in the chapter, uh, chapter seven, I do talk about that particular image. So you don't miss much, but I just want to let you know that uh, I failed to get that image on the cover. (laughs) There's a lot of uh, imagery, symbolism and iconography is very important in your work. So hopefully we can talk about some of these images as we go through. Mm That's really interesting, uh, the Hibutsu concept. I, I can't remember what book that I was reading, but I recall reading a book about the ashes of Ehe Dogen and how um, basically the only people that were allowed to view his his urn or his ashes were ordained monks. It's kind of a similar mm-hmm. concept. Exactly. So that particular statue still you can you can it's it's in at Onjoji Temple and only ordained Onjoji monks can see it. That's it. So if I were ordained monk at Onjoji, I could have used or could have uh, seen it. Huh. Uh, yeah. That's a. I don't want to. We'll uh, proceed, but that reminds me of one more thing. When I was uh, visiting Songguangsa, uh-huh. I was taken to a stupa for uh, chinul, and yes. the monk, my friend, told me that I'm not supposed to be there <laughs> because I'm not ordained. But he showed me anyways. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, chinul is the founder of the Songguangsa Temple. That's right. Okay, so how is the book? organized and actually i think it's really important that we talk about how much time the span of time that this book Mm -hmm. covers yes thank you for the uh, insightful question because time and space or temporality or speciality is other two main threads that organize the entire my uh, project and that I hopefully is clear to the readers and audiences as well. But the way that I organize the book is following that idea of, um, I mentioned in my introduction that um, Brodel, uh, he is on, one of the very influential um, um, anal historian, and he has this idea of Mediterranean. Um, and Using Mediterranean, I try to see more um, connections and, in, you know, um, with the idea of uh, theory of network um, theory, I use that to frame the whole um, um, the parameter of my research. But that's kind of a geographical um, a contour of my work. But temporality is also important because Brodel, again, uh, he kind of introduces these three different time sort of units to ask uh, more meaningful historical inquiries. So according to him, there are three different time spans. One is very long, in French, long durée. And that's what I actually try to do. Or in, a, in other words, I try to show uh, how over long time period, the Shila Myojin came to be uh, integrated into this uh, East Asian Mediterranean network. So the 
going back to the contents of the book, part one is basically I tried to show how this um, the theme of uh, water, which is in the Mediterranean, is full of water. So the contracting from that uh, water, I use fluidity as a main sort of uh, theme that uh, ties into Sheila Mujin's um, changing uh, transformations between this you know, net, network of seas. Um, so part one is basically showing more um, um, networks of immigrants in Sheila, but also those um, people who spread uh, Shila immigrants who went to China and also uh, who also find settlements in Japan. So that time period is basically what Shila Myojin becoming a very fluid deity of uh, maritime network. But part two is basically I try to explain how this fluid sea deity becomes a mountain deity in Japan. So I use this term called uh, sedentarization. Um, this is, I know, scholarly uh, uh, jargon that, you know, some readers um, in my drafting stages get rid of it, but I wanted to use it because it's kind of useful way to say that how mountain deity becomes sea deity and sea deity becomes mountain deity. But anyway, the part two tries to capture that moment that this fluid deity, sea deity, becomes a mountain deity and becomes also very central deity of institutionalization of this particular Buddhist institution called Jimon. Moving on, part three basically wants to restore this um, fluidity aspect of Shila Myojin, telling the story of Shila Myojin uh, becoming more very ironically, once he hit the bottom of the, you know, um, sedentarization, he regains this um, uh, fluidity so that he expands through different types of networks by humans and other uh, aspects. So he, Shila Myojin, becomes a deity of many different things through different networks. So basically, that's the last part of the book. Hmm. Yeah, there's we will do our best for our listeners to unpack because there's so much detail and interesting facts in your work, uh, especially in regards to time and geography, which while we're as a geographer, I'd, I'd like to just uh, give a shout out to your, your um, blurb in the book about the importance of sea as a space for transmission. Can you say mm-hmm. a little bit about that in the context of this work? Yes. Um, so I don't want to like, you know, generalize it, but in general, <laughs> uh, in general, uh, scholarship on Buddhism tend to focus on certain topics or certain angles. So what I try to do in this book is try to do differently. Um, and the sea became very important for me because uh, a lot of free previous scholarship tend to focus on more land-based um, transmission of ideas and practices. And in my work, I wanted to bring the sea as sort of um, sort of forgotten space, but also very important space that linked people rather than, you know, um, becoming a a more contact zone rather than a barrier. That was what I tried to 
um, sort of recover the sea as a main uh, special point. And of course, um, Brodel's idea was very helpful. And also, um, if you look at the one of the first maps that I include in the book, that is actually not my idea, but also um, coming from um, Amino Yoshihiko, very influential Japanese historian, who first kind of um, changed the way to look at the Japan as not necessarily isolated island. It's actually very closely connected uh, to other parts of the continents. And do you see the map that I, do you remember the map that I'm talking about? I'm trying to find the page number here. But anyway, so that if you turn around the map, so north becomes south and south south becomes north, and you see a lot of uh, different um, aspects, geographical aspects of how Japan is located in East Asia. Yeah, and so that kind of, uh, in the title, we have this concept of the East Asian Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Can you tell our listeners uh, what the East Asian Mediterranean is? Uh-huh. Yes, that's my favorite question. Because <laughs> over the, you know, over the several years when I was, you know, being invited by some talks or presenting my work to other scholars, that always comes to the first, one of the first questions. So, um well, East Asia Mediterranean, the word itself is um, coined by um, G- uh, German scholar Angela Schottenhammer. So I am indebted to her work. But uh, the way that I use the word is not necessarily looking at later period economical, you know, maritime trade uh, connections among different, you know, port ports in Asia and Southeast Asia um, network. The way that I use this East Asian Mediterranean is, again, seeing the sea as a main contact zone, but also Brodel's Mediterranean uh, is very interesting because it's not just talking about the connection uh, and the centrality of the sea, but also he really brings the connections between sea and the lands. So what I'm doing is sounds a little bit uh, paradoxical, but on the one hand, I really highlight the CDD and C connections. But on the other hand, I still like to uh, highlight at the same time, I highlight the connections, those connections made to the land, uh, the counterpart uh, on the land, whether that makes sense or not. <laughs> I'm not sure though. <laughs> Yes, it's interesting because in your work, and it's it's actually even more interesting, I'm not sure if this is intentional or not, but it sort of kind of reflects this, an idea that's very central to Tendai Buddhism, which we'll be talking about, this idea of non-duality, uh, as opposed to looking at, as, at space or a subject in, in sort of black and white terms, you look at it in a holistic way. And exactly, I think that's, that's interesting. Good. That's, that's exactly um, what I was trying to do, or at least it was behind of my uh, thinking. Because again, um, usually people, you know, um, when you study um, this kind of uh, transnational interactions, you either take very, you, you tend to take very uh, binary mode of thinking, right? But networks is something that can be used to dismantle 
you know, A influence B or B influence C, but you see more holistic, but more um, different uh, ways of how, you know, networks expands, but also diminishes, but also changes its, you know, uh, relationships between different nodal points. So I think that's what I wanted to do uh, through this uh, Buddhist networks in the West East Asian Mediterranean. So um, you mentioned these networks. Uh, I don't want us to get too caught up in the theoretical paradigms of your work, but I do think it's interesting before we get into the details to tell our audience about uh, another paradigm, which is the actor network theory, and maybe introduce uh, some of the primary networks that we'll be talking about. Mm -hmm. Right. So in my introduction, I mentioned that there are, basically I'm dealing with two different types or kinds of networks. One is created by humans or human networks. So basically I look at immigrants um, of Shila immigrants who were responsible for the later worship of Shila Myojin. And the second uh, network that I'm looking at is networks of gods. So gods are somehow very sort of um, neglected topic in Buddhist studies because, you know, a lot of um, there are other eminent scholars and intellectual histories and, you know, texts, important texts for this um, God seemingly very minor and not so important becomes very important for me because they are not just, you know, some imagined beings or some creations of particular um, texts. To me, it's really a um, very important point to talk about how Buddhism becomes an influential part of cultural history in East Asia. So um, Bruno Latour's uh, actor network theory is very useful, therefore, because uh, his theory allows me to express uh, or explain how those non-human, still they are non-humans, gods, but uh, still makes you do things. So in that sense, it's not totally reconcile the problem of non-human agency, but still allows us to look at how gods were very intimately connected to things happening on the ground. That was probably, um, yeah, what I was, uh, why I was so intrigued and um, influenced by this uh, actor network theory. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I think. Uh, for those of our audience who might be practitioners of Buddhism or may not be scholars, I know personally in my experience, I didn't realize the centrality that gods have in Buddhism and still I, and without a lot of study. But actually, they're quite powerful forces. And, and when you look at Buddhism in East Asia, it might appear to some people that it, that actually their their the main purpose of the temple is to facilitate uh, the worship of different types of deities. So yeah, we do have in the West we do have um, some long-standing sort of uh, culture around Buddhism, that Buddhism is all about philosophy and meditation. And even now, right, people are talking about mindfulness and, you know, all these benefits of uh, meditation. But that's really one small 
fragment of Buddhism, right? What really Buddhism sustained and supported, as you just mentioned, is the, this everyday people's uh, worship and gods were so important in it. Okay. Well, let's move on to chapter one, Between History and Story. And um, actually, we haven't really introduced who Shinra Myojin is. That's right. <laughs> and so uh, right. this would be a good time to do that as That's well. That's right. Uh, yeah. But I think it's maybe more appropriate to talk about Onjoji and maybe a general overview of Tendai Buddhism. Oh, wow. A lot to cover, but I will uh, remember. Yeah, we'll try order. our <laughs> Right. Um, so Shila Myojin, um, I want to say he's um, sort of a composite god. But from the beginning, the overarching question for this particular book start from this question that I had in, you know, as a young graduate student, why Korean name deity? Shila is an ancient Korean kingdom. So why Korean deity was worshipped in very influential Japanese Buddhist tradition for such a long time period? That was really simple, you know, question. So I was in the uh, investigation mode, you know, like like a detective tried to find why and all this. So that was, you know, uh, several years of my earlier research. But then I realized that Shila Myojin seems really pointing to much bigger picture. So then I realized by reading more scholar scholarly works on Tendai Buddhism, because this particular deity, um, um, Shila Myojin was initially worshipped uh, at the temple called Onjoji. And Onjoji Temple is basically one of the two major Tendai branch temples. And for the listeners who are not so familiar with Tendai Buddhism, i give you some <clears throat> little bit more of uh, background information here. So Tendai Buddhism is basically one of the major um, uh, Heian period uh, establishment of um, major Buddhist traditions. It is so important so that all the later Buddhist traditions, the founders of Japanese Buddhists, you know, like you just mentioned Soto Zen, right? Soto or Nichiren, all these major Pure Land Buddhists all studied at the, you know, Tendai Buddhist, you know, institution. So it has hugely important um, importance in the intellectual history of Japanese Buddhism. But what is interesting also while I was studying Shila Myojin is that you often think that Buddhist monks are very, you know, peaceful. They do meditation. They write, you know, some compose very philosophical treatise. But what I was interested in also uh, is that this. Tendais were vying for political and economic gains all the time. So like 10th century on uh, 11th century, all the way down to 16th century, um, Tendai monks, basically they split into two groups. One is called the Sammon and the other is called Jimon. But basically they are coming from the same um, Tendai tradition that was founded by Saicho. But sometime later, Saicho... Uh, some two groups claim that we are the descendants or we are the followers of this monk called Enchin, and the other says we are follower of this monk Enyin. So basically, Enyin's group becomes the Sammon tradition, 
and ancient script becomes the German tradition. And the rest of Tenda history, history, if you look at just violence, it's all about Buddhism and violence. They burn down each other's temples and borrow or steal each other's. And in the meantime, what happened is that Shila Myojin's worship becomes um, basically he, Shila Myojin's worship really grew out of this schism. So that's another interesting aspect of the life of Shila Myojin. I'd like to welcome our listeners back. I apologize to our listeners and to our hosts. We had a brief technical interruption. Uh, we were just talking about the relationship between Shinra Myojin and the Japanese Tendai Buddhist institution, as well as in jo- Onjoji. Uh, to bring our listeners back to speed, can, would you mind doing a brief recap of your answer to the previous question? Yes. So um, Shila Myojin is the sort of, in earlier scholarships, Shila Myojin is seen as the protective deity of Onjoji. And my whole book is basically tried to tackle or sort of um, go beyond that statement, saying that he was not only the protective deity of Onjoji, which is one of the two major uh, Tendai branches in the history of Tendai Buddhism, but he's more than that. That is basically what I'm trying to show in my book. Um, so in a way, this is uh, um, important. I think <laughs> I don't want to be too self-promotional, but this is the first work that uh, look at the uh, Jimon tradition of uh, um, Tendai Buddhism. So far, there are um, eminent scholars have looked at various aspects or mostly uh, institutional and intellectual history of Tendai Buddhism, but nobody has looked at the Jimon uh, Tendai Buddhism. And throughout, uh, especially my chapter four instance, I look at how distinctively uh, Jimon was shared in the Tendai history in terms of their rituals and um, uh, their practices and Shila Myojin being the really the uh, main um, force behind all this Onjoji's uh, formation of identity. So that was the, the gist. And the, uh, so Onjoji is very significant in this work. Can we talk a little bit about the issues that I know it's hard to talk in brief about these issues, but the issues that sort of caused the split uh, between the Sanmon and the Jimon. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So Sanmon and Jimon uh, are the two sort of, well, they, so originally when um, Tendai Institution was, um, you know, established on Mount Hie, uh, it was vastly different from the previous uh, existing tradition, but around like 9th century, towards the end of 10th century, um, when it got really bigger, you know, a lot of monks in, you know, practicing among here, they disagreed on who has more power and economic gains. So eventually that uh, led to a um, split between these two, but that was just not clean goodbye to each other, but there was very painful, several centuries um, long, you know, um, um, violence break up basically. Um, and Tendai Jimon never, never really fully 
instituted what they really wanted to do throughout this long uh, period of um, violence. So basically, they wanted to be a totally independent institution uh, from the Sammon. So what they wanted to do was to create an independent origination platform. What is important about this particular aspect is that you basically can ordain new monks. So you can really increase your members, right? But someone never allowed that happening. So the Jimon was constantly frustrated. They were knocking the door, you know, of the court emperors, you know, or the, you know, aristocrats were often, you know, um, being asked by these Jimon monks, can we get the, you know, ordination, um, uh, independent ordination and there were a lot of you know uh, conflicts and dramas in between and that's when Shila Myojin really grows. So Shila Myojin was basically the forefront of this ongoing battle between the Jimon and the Sammon. So my claim, uh, one of the smaller cl- claims that I make in this book is also the origin of Shila Myojin which is also a very important part. But uh, previously how shall I mute? There are several theories, but my um, conclusion or sort of tentative conclusion to that uh, conf- competing theories is that very likely, historically, there was another deity called Sekizam Myojin. Sekizam Myojin is the sort of protective deity of the Sammon, the other one. And Shila Myojin is the protective deity of the Jimon tradition in Tendai Buddhism. And my... Um, uh, conclusion is that Shila Myojin is actually a copy of Sekizam Myojin. It came later, but became more influential and important because Jimon really know they knew that how to utilize this deity for their po- political and economic gain. I see. And uh, the location of Onjonji, the sort of headquarters of the Jimon, was in a place that is really significant in terms of the transmission of Shinra Myojin to Japan. Yes. Thank you for asking that question. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that moves us to sort of chapter two, which is about the network of Shila immigrants and the emergence of Shinra Myojin. So can you tell us about the, this uh, province, Omi, where Onjonji was located and how it is significant in terms of Shinra Myojin? Thank you for bringing that up because, um, yeah, I'm sort of jumping here and there, um, but you really grounds me very uh, to the focal point. So, um, yeah, Omi is very central uh, for a number of reasons, but one of the main reasons is uh, is that um, it was sort of um, stronghold of immigrants from Korean Peninsula. So one thing that I wanted to also clarify when we talk about immigrants and Sheila, these are all very um, complicated topic. It merits its own, you know, maybe another book length study on those. But one thing that I want to uh, uh, bring our um, listeners' attention to is uh, Sheila is actually used in Japanese um, medieval sources sort of as a synonym to basically ancient Korea. In other words, uh, if you have to sort of look at the history of Korea a little bit more here. So Korea has this uh, three kingdoms period. Three kingdoms has Koguryo and Baekje and Shila, right? 
So um, there were sort of these three major kingdoms, and at some point, um, Baekje was very became very close to um, the Yamato, you know, which we call it Japan, Yamato court. So when Omi became very influential in uh, the 7th century, there was mostly people from Baekje because they had very politi- close political tie between Yamato court and Baekje um, court. But what happened in the late 7th century, exactly 668, um, was Shila with the help of Tang, Chinese Tang dynasty, they basically um, fought Baekje uh, and basically it led to the demise of Baekje. So for Japanese who do not know, as of course the elite knows what's going on, but uh, for a lot of uh, Japanese intellectuals who are not really familiar familiar with this part of Korean history, Shilla becomes um, sort of um, synonym to Baekje and Kuguryo and you know Shilla unified Shilla, which exists after seventh century all the way to the tenth century. So when I say Shila Myojin, it's not really clear whether it could have been Baekje Myojin, could have been, you know, um, some other Korean related. Or if you want to bring more modern perspective, it's basically calling this deity Korean deity, right? So that is uh, one thing that Omi becomes important. But also, um, you mentioned, you know, the Omi becoming sort of a nurturing ground of these immigrants, but also eventually um, connects to the emergence of Shila Myojin worship at Onjoji. So because Onjoji is located in Omi area. But also another interesting aspect of um, Onjoji is um, it has another nickname called Midera. So if you go to Japan now, if you just ask people in Kyoto or, you know, near Kyoto, where is Onjoji? Probably they do not know. But when you say where's Midera, then probably they know. So Midera is a more popularly known name, but the name itself also is sort of significant because it basically means um, it has to do with uh, its sort of founding legend and its close connection to the imperial uh, patronage. So basically, it, at Midera or Onjoji, there is a small well. Uh, and the tradition um, says that the well, the water, spring water from the well was used to uh, uh, for the um, consecration or some sort of uh, sacred ritual for the um, birth of these three important um, emperors in Japanese history in the 7th and 8th centuries. So one is Tenji, the other is... Um, Temu, and then the last one is Jito. Jito is actually empress. So, so the Midera really wants to highlight they are connected to these three uh, emperors, but especially the first one, which is um, Tenji, who moved capital from Osaka to Omi. That's why I'm bringing this sort of becomes very long um, answer, but Omi becomes an uh, Im- important point because 7th century, when uh, Emperor Tenji was sitting in Osaka Palace, he saw that, you know, Baekje 
was basically defeated by Sheila, and Sheila is about to, you know, um, invade or they were threatening force to their, you know, Yamato court. So Tenji decided to move his palace to Omi. So Omi becomes a new palace, and he, when new palace was constructed, um, he one of the temples that he erected is Sohukuji, and Sohukuji is basically the predecessor of Onjoji. So you have very clear connection to what's happening in Chile um, already before you know uh, Onjoji became Onjoji. And this space is. It's um, for audience. Um, I encourage you to check out the book because there's a lot of detail here. So we're doing our best to cover all these interrelated threads. And um, but this space of where Onjoji is located is also significant in a different sense because, as you state, um, this the conflict of the Sanmon and the Jinmon is deeply related to politics and uh, the association with. Uh, Shinar Miljin is is also connected to this uh, struggle for uh, support from the court, and one of the ways that you state that the um, these institutions sort of uh, asserted their authenticity is by their association with continental culture, and um, so the presence of the Shila immigrants and their adoption of of this. Um, the presence of the Shila immigrants and the Jimon's adoption of a deity that may have been transmitted by them is also kind of related to this broader political struggle, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you beautifully kind of um, show what's going on here. So, yes, I yes, absolutely yeah. agree with. Mm-hmm. And once, so uh, we're sort of moving forward, we we get to part two of the book, which you've titled Sedentarization Networks of Shila Deities and Shinra Miljin. Um, so once the, um, what is the process of Shinra Miljin sort of sedentarization and the transformations that it undergoes when it becomes a part of the institution of the Jimon? Mm-hmm. Yes. So part two is basically try to show how Shila Myojin becomes not sea deity anymore, but mountain deity. So here, sea mountain sounds a little bit abstract, but basically mountain deity in this aspect is, in this context is basically the protective power or almost the uh, altered ego of Onjoji's um, struggle to compete with the most powerful institution of that time, which is Sammon, but also tried to be, they were really struggling, the Jimon. On the one hand, they want to be separate from the Sammon. So they were, all they were uh, interested in is uh, to gain the permission from the emperor that they can have their own, you know, ordination platform. But on the other hand, they still want to say that we are the Tendai, you know, we are the the excellent Tendai Buddhism. So, um, but during that process, they do a lot of um, self sort of uh, promotional uh, sort of uh, activities. So they uh, sort of invent or they kind of develops a lot of specifically Jimon rituals or deities and um, sort of uh, temple events. So, and the chapter, is it three and four? 
mostly showing that particular more details of how much Shila Myojin was integrated into this Jimon's calendar of this oldest, you know, um, monastic um, culture and um, how that helped Jimon to be promoted and also gain gain more political support because it, it actually worked. Um, so like, for instance, earlier part of Onjoji uh, history, there was this clan, Omi-based clan called Otomo clan. They were uh, major, one of the major um, uh, sponsors of this um, temple. But from 10th, 11th century on, Minamoto clan becomes a major uh, one of the major patrons of the temple and minamoto is uh, as you know uh, one of the you know minamoto yoritomo um 11th century uh, um, military general becomes a founder of kamakura shogunate and that really helped um shila myojin not just becoming you know contained to onjoji but onjoji creates its own sort of temple and shrine networks all over japan with uh, minamoto's uh, successful military ex- uh, expansion so i think that was um sort of major one of the major uh, points that i wanted to illustrate in part two yes and so we see this um you talk in the three parts of the book how you know Originally, Shinra Myojin's identity was sort of fluid upon arrival to Japan. And then this process of becoming more heavily associated with the Jimon is this what you describe as sedentarization and then eventually a return to fluidity. But uh, um, with this concept of fluidity, you also talk about another concept, the Honji Suijaku, and this kind of multi-faceted aspect of uh, Shinra Myojin's identity. And you are, mm. Oh, I was going to say you, you talk, you just mentioned the Minamoto clan, but there's also an, uh, the other aspect, uh, another network that you talk about is, um, Shugendo and the Kumano pilgrimage. Can you say a little bit about that and how this resulted in, we have the, the proximity the proximity of uh, Onjonji to Shila immigrants and the sort of absorption of Shinar Myojin into the Jinmo institution, and then the spread across space of its worship. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, thank you for the question. So, um, yeah, Honji Suizaku theory is very uh, important to describe the world that I explored in this book. But also, as you uh, rightly point out, as I said, uh, Jimon is really expanding through different types of networks, uh, both human and non-human. And Shugendo becomes very uh, one of the major um, points of how Jimon um, network expands, but therefore Shilamyojin expands beyond um, this Omi area all the way to you know the key peninsula, the major peninsula in Japan, but also all the way up to Hokkaido in Japan later on. But um, Shugendo is basically, well, there are, um, I think, uh, several important young scholars working on the Shugendo volume. So probably I'm not the best person to explain what, what it is, but um, why Shugendo becomes important for Shila Myojin is that uh, around 11th century or so, Onjoji somehow they convince 
convince the emperor. Well, if you have to sort of, it gets a little bit uh, complicated, but in Japanese history, in the medieval time period, there were time period 11, 12 centuries where retired monk, uh, retired emperors become more powerful. So, and those retired monks, they wanted to sort of exhibit their political power to other people. And that was basically staged as a Kumano pilgrimage. So Kumano is basically a place somewhere in the middle of the key peninsula. And Kumano is also actually the birthplace of Shugendo practice. Shugendo, some people um, translate it as um, mountain asceticism, or some, there's numerous ways to explain it, but what we know, uh, thanks to recent scholarship, is that it's not as ancient as you would think, um, but also it's very hybrid uh, religious practice. At one point during the Meiji period, it was banned. So we have uh, a lot of uh, difficulties to recover the actual history of it, but it goes all the way, some, you know, um, um, scholars think this is this goes all the way back to the you know ancient period, but uh, recent scholarship says that this is more later medieval uh, phenomena where um, learned you know um, practitioners from Buddhism and Shinto and other local um, um, religions they somehow found uh, mountains as the most sacred uh, dwelling place of the deities and power so that they want to tap into those powers by entering and doing a lot of rituals within the mountain areas. So that's Shugendo. But going back to Onjoji's um, Shugendo relationship, um, so 11th century on, somehow Onjoji found its um, control in the Kumano area. So if you look at my uh, chapter, I think, um, I forgot which chapter, but I mentioned a lot of uh, exam- visual examples from the Kumano pilgrimage, a Kumano mandala. So basically, these um, pilgrims um, brought a lot of rituals, and but also they also influenced what's happening in Kumano on the ground. And you see Chila Myojin is depicted in those a lot of uh, Kumano mandalas. So my argument in that chapter was that um, Shila Myojin traveled through these Shugendo practitioners and Shugendo networks helped to facilitate the uh, transmission of Shila Myojin beyond Onjoji. Yeah, so according to your work, we have this, uh, it, you, you do a good job of bringing up these networks and how the Shinra Myojin spread far beyond just uh, Onjoji's institution and into spaces that may not be obvious through these networks of Shugendo practitioners, as well as um, powerful aristocratic clans that invested in the institution of the Jimon. You mentioned um, this chapter is, uh, chapter three is the medieval transformations of Shinra Myojin and Chapter four uh, discusses how um, the Jimon utilized various forms of art, such as literature and performance and waka poetry to further perpetuate their um, association with Shinra Myojin. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. 
Yes, and also that reminds me of the source materials that I deal with uh, for my uh, research because that is also very important to uh, unpack. So another thing that I wanted to do differently in my work was uh, to look at a source that not really uh, utilized in the previous scholarship, which is um, Temple Chronicles. So during the Japanese medieval time period, um, temples, 11th century on, when you know central governments collapses and individual temples are vying for more you know political um, um, patronage, they try to kind of uh, come up with narratives based on their um, knowledge on Buddhism and other Shinto ideas. So well, Shinto didn't exist then, but you know those native um, ideas. So. What's happening is that each temple writes a self-narrative, mostly very sort of self-promotional tone, but they record the origin stories of their temples and all the mirac- you know, like uh, miracle tales and um, all the, their major deities and what they do and their eminent monks and all these things. So all these things were compiled on individual, uh, at individual temples. So what I'm doing in this work is to look at 14th century, this is the, um, all these temple chronicles that we have for Onjoji. So there is a temple uh, chronicle called uh, Onjoji Denki from 14th century, and there is a Jimon Tengi Horoku, which is a 15th century um, temple chronicles produced and circulated throughout the Jimon networks. Those are the main sources for my research. And in it, you see a lot of different um, aspects of Shila Myojin. So basically, chapter four really um, grounds on those more details of those um, information that I, that I could um, retrieve from these temple chronicles. So uh, I look at uh, how Onjoji becomes a major um, ground for Waka competition in the medieval time period. Writing was an uh, act of political acts, basically. So not everyone can write, but especially Waka, Japanese poems were seen as sort of um, um, the supreme uh, expression of um pure language and pure Japanese. So I kind of trace back to um, this Buddha, Buddhism, how Buddhist idea of Dharani. Uh, Dharani is uh, in English, we translate as a spell or incantation, but some sort of magical formula um, written in um, Sanskrit. Um, in Indic language. But basically, Japanese got this idea that we are so great and we have something called waka, Japanese poems. And Buddhism has this sacred language called Sanskrit. And it appears to be that Sanskrit and waka are almost identical in terms of their expression of most uh, elaborated and um, supreme uh, aesthetical aspects of language. So anyway, this idea became very uh, influential uh, later on. So Shila Myojin now um, becomes part of this intellectual scene. So he becomes a protective deity of Waka composition. So going back to the Temple Chronicles, you see different Waka examples. Actually, it's in that uh, Temple Chronicles, but also 
uh, individual monks kind of dreamed of Shila Myojin and Shila Myojin gives them uh, some sort of inspiration so that they win the competition and all these things are happening uh, in the text. So it's a really fascinating uh, source of information. And one problem with this um, Temple Chronicles is it's not really historical text because you know, it's not objectively scientifically written. But my uh, approach to that text is if you carefully you know, read between the lines with other uh, help of other texts, you can see some, you can construct some historical uh, elements in it. And that's what I was trying to do in chapter three and four. I see. And that, and in chapter three and four, you really start to um, touch on the complexity of Shira Myojin as a composite deity, because uh, the the Jimon implemented and emphasized on so many different aspects of this deity, the deity as a mountain deity or a landlord deity, the deity as a deity of poetry, which is also further associated with another deity, Susano, which um, we can move forward and talk about um, how Shira Monjin's fluidity um, sort of returned. And um, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before, in Chapter 5, you talk about yet another aspect of Shinra Myojin, which is Shinra Myojin as a star deity or Sanjo. Can you introduce that to us a little bit? And yeah. Yes, definitely. So um, Sonjo is another interesting um, deity, um, and that is very unique um, deity that exclusively worshipped at the Unjoji Temple. So what you see here is that very close collaboration between Buddhist monks at you know elite Buddhist monks at Unjoji and the court. So different patrons, uh, patrons uh, in Japanese history sponsor different uh, rituals. But for certain um, group of people, uh, this is actually a branch of a very famous clan called Fujiwara clan in Japanese history. Um, so there is Kujo clan. This is uh, one of the sub-branches of Fujiwara. And Fujiwara, those Kujo um, um um, females who supposed to be soon to be the emperor empress or who is going to be part of this court you know um, membership their goal was to deliver a safe uh, safe delivery so basically deliver a boy to become a future son of emperor but also uh, safe delivery to ensure that you know that uh, clan, you know, continue to seize the power. So delivery was not personal, individual, <laughs> you know, um, labor becomes a political, uh, polit- highly politicized act. So what Buddhist monks were trying to do is to ensure them that they have all the, you know, secret ways to protect that and make that happen. So Sonjo actually, you know, comes, you know, comes into this scene. So basically, different um, Buddhist tradition, Tendai or Shingong of that time period, they had each uh, their own versions of uh, astral or star deities. And Shila Myojin 
um, so at Unjoji, Sonzo-o um, becomes their own version, unique, you know, brand. Just like, you know, somebody has iPhone, somebody has Samsung Galaxy, who is better, right? And then you compete. I have better one, better technology, so that I'm better, right? So that idea is actually, you can apply to that. Uh, this is what's happening in this uh, Star Deity worships. So for Onjoji, they have this most esoteric, most secretive, therefore most hidden, but... Uh, by definition, it's the most superior deity, uh, star deity is what they are, you know, um, presenting to this older, you know, uh, people who needs their help. So Sonjo becomes very um, important deity. And what is interesting for me is when you look at those Sonjo section of Temple Chronicles, Shila Myojin ritually becomes one with Sonjo. So in other words, Sonjo is none other than Shila Myojin. So that was one part of uh, my um, fascina- fascination and writing uh, one chapter entirely around Sonjo uh, in the ritual itself. We, don't know, we do not know much the details of the Sonjo ritual because it's so secretive. But what we could retrieve is that Shila Myojin is residing the ritual and ritually are basically identical to Sonjo. Did I answer yeah. that question? Yeah, so <laughs> like I've been saying, there's really quite a lot of material. This book spans uh, centuries of history of the Tendai Buddhist institution and their relationship to Shinra Myojin and many other actors. And so it, it's a very expansive work. And so the chapter six goes to yet another um aspect of Shinramyojin as a composite deity, which is that as a pestilence deity. And this is related to Susano, as I was saying earlier. Can you tell us about that, please? Yes. So uh, I was so glad that I wrote this chapter because now we are in the COVID era and I have some, you know, previous scholarships so that I can, you know, that could be my uh, future direction for my later scholarship. But basically, Susano is another sort of Shila deity, what I would call. In other words, has some connection in the mythological account, uh, has something to do with Shila. And um, I don't know, you may heard of this in Japan, in Kyoto, there is Gion Festival. It's very famous, you know, annual events happening in Kyoto, basically to word of uh, pandemic you know, not, yeah, pestilence deity. And that main shrine is uh, basically um, Gion Shrine. And Gion Shrine is one of the main focal deity is used to be actually Susano. So Susano is in Japanese medieval period, he is seen as um, the paradigmatic deity of pandemics or uh, pestilence or disease. And my overarching question for this particular chapter was that why Sheila is associate, associated with disease? And I know that, you know, um, um, transmission can be, you know, both destructive and constructive, but why Korea being source of um, disease? And what I could uh, f- retrieve is that... Um, so it's kind of have, have to do with uh, how Japanese imagined the ancient Korean peninsula 
And if you look at the ancient, one of the ancient um, Japanese um, mythological text, Nyon Shoki, Nyon Shoki, one part explains that. So Susano is basically, if you if you know a little bit more about Japanese mythology, creation mythology, um, there is Amaterasu, um, just like Adam and Eve. There is Amaterasu sister and Susano the brother, and this brother is very unruly. So um, basically bullying his sister, Amaterasu, the ancestor god of uh, Japan. So Susano was expelled by other Japanese gods. He's so um, rebellious. So he goes to Shila in the mythology and he comes back. And what is happening in medieval period is that based on this ancient account about uh, Susano, um, the medieval intellectuals, they try to sort of revamp or re- retell the whole story of who Susano is and how all these things works. We call it, this is medieval medieval Shina in Japanese, but medieval mythology. Buddhist ideas help Japanese intellectuals to retell, reconfigurate the Japanese um, um, mythology, basically. But basically, Susano becomes the major pestilence god. And at Onjoji, because of Susano's um, connection to Shila, at some point, Japanese Onjoji monks made a connection between Shila Myojin and Susano. And claiming that Susano is not returned from Korea they changed the narrative saying that Susano went to Shila to conquer Shila. So what that meant to Shila Myojin is that it's a little bit complicated, I know. (laughs) So basically what's happening is that Susano becomes Shila Myojin or it it is identified as Shila Myojin. And now what's happening is that their great deity Shila Myojin is none other than Susano. So um, previously, Shila Myojin may have give, given you an impression that it's a deity of God has to do with Shila immigrants. But at certain points, especially like toward to the end of uh, medieval period, Japanese Onjoji monks think that no, Shila is, Shila Myojin, Shila is actually um, not necessarily had to do with immigrants, but it's more like, like a Susano. He is the supreme power of this Japan, the Japanese. In other words, he's the one who conquered Shila. Um, so that's why he has this name Shila. So in other way, it's the not deity of Shila, but the deity who conquered Shila. So there's very interesting twists in their logic to figure out why they worship this Shila deity from ancient time period on. In their... And these twists are in logic are very interesting. Um, do you, this is sort of a side question, but how much of this uh, across history of the, of the Jimon faction of the Tendai Shu and its relationship with Shinra Nojin and the way that it was, has been portrayed and utilized in ritual to sort of solidify power. How much of this do you think was a conscious effort on the part of the, um, Jimon. 
That's a really great question. I don't know. I cannot say how. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a great question.、Uh, made me think, but I don't want to say everything was for political, you know, competition. But what I see is there is throughout the history of Onjoji. What I can see is there is constant tension in Japanese intellectuals,、um, epistemic, how to engage with. The you know this very inconvenient other, which is Korea. On the one hand, they have this in the in the past in the ancient time period they had close political tie and connection through Buddhism, but at some point they also wanted to deny and yet also still want to claim that continental connection to to claim their superiority over other Japanese Buddhist institutions. So a lot of layers and tensions are going on in Onjoji materials. Yes, it's it's very fascinating, and I encourage the readers to check your work out because、uh, you really do a good job of going through all these details and covering this wide range of history. <laughs> Thank you. There's <laughs> kind of, <laughs> and we go even further with this multifaceted fluidity of Shinrin Myojin, which is the idea of the old man deity and、mm-hmm. this. Concept that existed across space and manifested furthermore in the iconography and symbolism of Shinra Noji、mm-hmm. of the Jimo. Can、yes. you tell us about the old man deity? Yes,、uh, absolutely. So、um, I'm very visual person, and if I was not in Buddhist studies, probably I was in Buddhist art history. <laughs> But <laughs> so I was very intrigued by this, you know, the cover image that I wanted to have, right? So this particular、um, 11th century wooden statue of、uh, Shilamyojin has very distinctively white face and very almost grotesque facial expression. Um, so my very simplistic question was why this deity has very white appearance and obviously old man looking appearance, and I see a lot of connections while I was digging more and more about other deities. Because when you study Shilamyojin, you have to study other deities who are related to Shilamyojin, and realize that a lot of Deities that I can identify have something in common. They all related to Shilla or Korea, and they all have white face, and they all have old man appearance. So basically, that's what the you know how I、uh, got inspired、um, and wrote the last chapter, and to see the how those deities are connected,、um, but. For the most part, I、um, dedicate to like decipher、uh, how Shilamyojin's iconography might have been、um, constru- reconstructed with existing、um, narratives or networks and existing iconographical tradition. So, what I try to show in that chapter is that I'm not claiming that every deity has, you know, old man face has. Uh, to do with、uh, Shila Mujin or、um, Shila, but there is this very、um, close、uh, approximate approximate approximity between those、uh, deities such as Shira Hige Mujin, Sekiza Mujin, of course Shila Mujin and Inari Mujin.、Um, 
all have something in common or two in common basically has you know korean connection and um uh, old man looking so i for particularly uh, for the iconography of shila myojin i identified particular um genre of buddhist paintings um there is a buddhist bodhisattva whose name is manjushri and manjushri became a um sort of a very influential uh, point for later iconographical development in um, Buddhism, but there's one particular type of Manjushri um, kind of uh, configuration. So I explained that how that particular uh, uh, iconographic genre helped to um, sort of um, visualize the Shilamyojin iconography that we have now. This is all very interesting, and I'm hoping our listeners are having a good time. Um, <laughs> I'm having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, as you wrote this work, what uh-huh. were some of the challenges in covering uh-huh. all these different components? Yes. Well, there were many challenges, I must say, but uh, hmm. I think... Yeah, it's uh, what I was really struggle. I struggled with is this identification problem. So if you go into the this medieval, I said Chuseshina or medieval mythology, it's really it's really nuts. <laughs> it says this A D D is B, and then C D D is D, but then D is A. So try to draw the map and how, you know, logically it all makes sense was major deity. So my work is really very, um, I'm really, I feel like I'm, I just scratched the surface of this uh, wonderful world of medieval Japanese mythology. And there are newer scholarship. This is actually very new scholarship, even in Japanese um, Buddhist studies. Uh, people are co- recovering um, those materials traditionally seen as more um, less pure and less, you know, um, orthodox. But now newer generation of scholarship tend to look at more. Um, those previously marginalized materials and subjects. So that's what I've tried to do, you know, like try to recover those marginalized uh, figures such as gods and also materials such as um, temple chronicles and try to connect, not just looking at Shila Myojin as uh, either Korea or Japan. This binary mode of thinking doesn't really help us much I'm not really historically proving anything here. I'm trying to show how those connections are made and how densely those uh, networks were spread throughout over different time periods. That's all what I try to do in this book. So I don't know whether I the case that I present was convincing or not, but I think I did my best. Yeah. And have there been... Um... I guess uh, without trying to make things tense, but what have there mm-hmm. been challenges from other scholars uh, regarding oh. this work? And c- mm. Could you mention something about that? Oh well, there were some um, exchanges. Oh, this is that or that, but I don't think not necessarily 
like major um, pushbacks from Japanese scholarship, or I don't know, maybe I should translate into Japanese so that I see. <laughs> <laughs> after that I should save that. <laughs> but um, I see more welcoming from uh, other Tendai scholars in English, English, you know, um, sc- scholarship saying that you know, Jimon was something lacking in previous Tendai scholarship. So I see it more as a complementary rather than uh, anything else. Um, but I, since you asked me to sort of um, challenges, one thing that I tried to, I remember is uh, when I, so I'm Korean, by the way. <laughs> so, um, and my whole journey of studying Buddhism start with uh, to study Korean Buddhism a little bit uh, better. Korean Buddhism is really understudied. And to me, this Shila Myojin was perfect topic to bridging Korea and Japan and also China in a most interesting way. But when I presented my sort of, um, you know, book, the, you know, gist of the idea to a Korean Buddhist scholar, he he's very famous one, uh, and he said, "Oh, that's not Buddhism." <laughs> so that was a sort of a very memorable moment for me. Uh, but that kind of captures sort of still there are a lot to be um, kind of um, mediated between English scholarship and non-English scholarship. Their methodology, their um, their own scholarly biases. Yeah, <laughs> I put it that way. And we. <laughs> yeah, thank you for doing that. I think it's a it's not necessarily a traditional question, but it is interesting to have a question like that on the podcast, just so we, our audience can get a fewer uh, wider view of of what's happening in scholarship in regards to this topic. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, and we've barely even scratched the surface of your work. <laughs> um, but I'm curious, what are you working on next, and what can our audience expect from you? Uh huh. Thank you. Um, so I'm currently um, working on um, something uh, also non-traditional <laughs> and something uh, that hasn't really studied so far, which is talismans. So talismans, I think, another wonderful um, lens through which to explore um, many different traditions and also transnationally. But this time, I want to focus more on Korean religions. So uh, my second book project deals, deals with this um, um, Joseon period, which is 14th century to early 20th century. Because Joseon period, I chose that because it has more uh, materials than any other time periods. But they ha- we have a lot of talismans, different types of like Buddhism, Taoism, shamanism. The list goes on and on. But I'm more, because of, you know, look, living in this strangest new world, pandemic world, I'm very interested in um, uh, connections to healing and medicine. And also, I already have one chapter in, you know, in my Shila Myojin book about pestilence. So it's kind of more building on that idea of um, healing and disease and how talisman fits into these bigger questions. So uh, still very tentative, uh, very, um, you know, uh, all this stage, but I like to write a book on Korean healing talismans 
um, and focusing on the chosen period and um, try to see more connections within Korean religions and beyond. That sounds fascinating. And I really appreciate yes. your uh, emphasis on material culture and uh, non-human aspects of Buddhism, such as gods and talismans. I think I also read somewhere, perhaps in your university biography, that you were working on something related to Kegon Kyo. Is that correct? Oh, yes. Yes. So that's uh, another um, book project that I'm thinking of having it, uh, making it is um, I'm sort of interested in performance as well. <laughs> so Buddhist performance, um, especially storytelling. So Buddhist monks in the medieval time period, they use storytelling as a distinctive technique to spread and circulate and also gain economic um, sort of um, capitals. So um, this, there is this um, huayen or kegon in Japanese or a Korean huam, um scroll. Um, basically, it's, um, in Japanese, emaki has text and image. And this particular scroll that I'm interested in is called kegon engi emaki. It's basically a story of Wonhyo and Uisang. It's, it's made by 13th century Japanese monk, Kegon monk, but it's about 7th century Chila monks who traveled to China. So this was another interesting sort of material for me to connect Korean Japan or so different time periods, like 7th century and the 13th century, but connects but connected by Huayan tradition or Kegong tradition, but also has uh, something to do with performance. So that probably after Talisman book, I like to write that part. <laughs> Fascinating, <laughs> and I'm sure uh, scholars across the board will welcome this uh, your work, which highlights these transcultural aspects, especially between Japan and Korea, because as you have mentioned, it, it's something that's understudied, but also illuminates quite a bit about both respectively about Japanese Buddhism and Korean Buddhism. Well, that about wraps up our interview, but if you have any closing thoughts or any um, aspects of the work that we didn't cover, I invite you to mention them to our listeners. Oh, oh well, I think we really covered uh, major parts and I think you really helped me to uh, explain better. Um, but I think the, you know, rather than me talking and sometimes does not make sense much, probably I recommend to read the book <laughs> and the paper copy will be coming out in October. So it'll be cheaper. Excellent. Yes. I encourage all of you to get your hands on the book any way that you can request that your university library gets a copy or purchase it for yourself and uh, share it with any like-minded individuals. It's uh, very enlightening and I think you will find it fascinating. Well, with that said, thank you, uh, thank you Sujung, and thank you to our mm -hmm. listeners, and we will see you again on New Books and Buddhist Studies. Take care. <laughs>